0: Thanks for joining us on our walk through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In this series, we'll see many cultural similarities between the Pacific Northwest and ancient Greece. In the fifth mini-series, Gospel-Formed Worship, Paul covers topics like gender, communion, and spiritual gifts like prophecy and speaking in tongues. We'll be challenged and grown by God's word. So join us Sundays at 9 or 11 a.m. For more information, please visit doxa-church.com.
1: And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
0: Good morning. How are we doing? I'm Jeff. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, it's my privilege to walk us through this text today. It's been a good journey going through first corinthians together i'd love it if we would pray and just ask god to speak to our hearts let's do that father we come to you and trust that because you are god you know every person in this room you know every thought and motive you know every struggle we're facing you know how we came here and what you are planning to do when we leave here and because of that we ask that you might work in this moment through your word, to transform our hearts. That you would awaken our hearts and minds, our souls to you and all that you are and all that you've done and all that we are because of that. And so we are in need of you and we acknowledge that and we ask that in this moment you would meet us and uh, bring hope, encouragement, conviction, and transformation through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you know, before Father's Day, we spent two weeks together in First Corinthians, specifically talking about the spiritual gifts and how you are a gift and how God also gifts you with gifts to serve the body. And now Paul, as he ends this discussion about spiritual gifts, he wants to make sure we understand that there's something even greater than What we've been given in terms of gifts and what we do with those gifts. And he says it this way at the end of chapter 12, I will show you a still more excellent way. He wants us to be clear that God's not most impressed with the gifts. He's not most concerned with just what we do with them. He is most concerned with the way of love, that we would walk in a way that looks like our God. And I want to be clear as we start this morning that love is not a feeling but a way of living. That's really important. We tend to grow up in a culture and surrounded by a context where when we think of love, we think of emotions or we think of pleasure. So some of you go, I love chocolate, right? And the truth is you don't love chocolate, you enjoy chocolate, you're pleased with chocolate, you consume chocolate, but you don't love it. Not in the way that we're going to read about here. Love is a very different thing in terms of how God defines it versus how the world defines it. It's not a feeling, it's a way of living. And as many of you know, this passage is often read at a wedding, and I want to just make sure we bring a little corrective, not that it's wrong to read it at a wedding, but don't forget who Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to a a messed up church who is walking in in rebellion and disobedience. And so this isn't like a fluffy feel-good passage. This is a confrontation and a correction and a rebuke of the fact that they're not living in line with what love looks like. So maybe we might better read this 10 years into marriage when we realize we're all in trouble, right? In fact, I'm often at the the other side of watching a bride come down and standing next to the groom. and, And I know in that moment, he, he's not experiencing love, it's called infatuation, it's impression, it's uh, something else. But it's not the love that we read about in this text because we all know, maybe this didn't happen to you yet, and you're newlywed and you're like, Jeff, don't ruin it for us. Just like, let us live in the glory of, of bliss and all that. Uh, but I know, I've told you our story, it just took us getting to Hawaii for our honeymoon for us to go from impression and infatuation to the reality that we need this text really badly right? We need to learn what it looks like to bear with one another in love in a way that's otherworldly. And so some of you uh, are in that right now, in your marriages or in your friendships or in your situations where you're going, okay, love is getting tested right now. And uh, it, it, it can stand up, I will promise you that, if you've got the love of God as we're going to look at together. It won't if it's not love from God. Paul, as he starts here, he wants us to start with imagining a world without love. He wants us to imagine that you lived in a world where what you say, what you know, and what you do is void of love. And he wants to make it really clear, if we live in a world where we're impressive, where we're smart, where we have, know everything, where we can do incredible stuff, and we don't have love, That is a world of nothingness. In fact, the way he starts out is he would say, it's just noisy and nothing without love. It's just noisy and nothing. If I speak in the tongues of men, he says, and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, most commentators believe there's two things that are probably being referenced here. The, the gong was, there was a kind of a, a brass vessel that actors would use to speak their voice into and then it would magnify into the room so that everybody in the room could hear the actor speak. Uh, and then there's another reference to the, 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 this, the this clanging symbol. And if you were to be in Corinth at the time, Corinth was known as kind of the center for brass works and copper uh, uh, works, where they would create vessels and cookware and all these kinds of things out of, out of brass and out of copper. And you, if you wanted to see where they were making them, you would go to a particular part of Corinth and walk down the road where the markets were selling goods, and you would meet the people who were out there banging on the copper and the brass. And how many of you guys have ever been around uh, someone who works with metal? It's not a quiet deal, it's super loud, right? And so you can just imagine a whole bunch of people out there smashing hammers into copper and brass. And if you'd walk through that marketplace, you would not be able to have a conversation because the, the noise is so all-consuming that you can't hear one another. So what Paul is saying, you can imagine, is the Corinthians are having their their minds brought to the theater where the actors are just playing a part, but they aren't the real deal. And the noise of the marketplace is making it impossible to hear each other. And he's saying, when you have this kind of ability to speak, as impressive as it might be, with all your rhetoric and even tongues of angels you need to understand if you don't have love you're just as empty as an actor playing a part that has nothing behind them other than the noise of this gong shouting out words that when they leave the stage they don't mean or you're like the noise of the the clanging in the marketplace where it's so noisy that though you might say with your lips you love one another your lives are screaming an entirely different message and nobody can hear the message of love from your life and i would say We probably need as a a rebuke in this day and age to the church a word that says this, just because you know the truths of the gospel and can speak them really well or know finer uh, thoughts of doctrine and can articulate them and even debate them, if you don't have love, the very message that you're proclaiming is undermined by the living uh, of your life, that you lack the love you say you believe in. And, and that concerns me. And I would say, family, we've got to do a better job of showing love before we expect to declare that God is love. If we don't walk in the way of love, no one will hear the message of love. In fact, they're going to hear something very different. In fact, I'm concerned that that's what's happening. That the dominant message the culture is receiving from the church is not one of love, but a condemnation and hatred and bitterness and resentment and division all based in pride and selfishness. He goes on, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. Remember the Corinthians were boasting at how much they knew and the wisdom they thought they had and the prophetic words they were receiving and the words of knowledge that the Spirit was granting and Paul is speaking to a group of people who are becoming really impressed with what they know and what they can do. And he's basically saying, if you think you know God, but you don't love people, you're just ignorant. See, 1 John 4 says it this way. If you say that you know God who is love and yet fail to love your brother, then you don't actually know God like you think you do. Because if God is love and you know him, then you would love like he loved you. And if I, I want to say it this way, family. The, your Your present demonstration of your knowledge of God, and I mean personal acquaintance with, not, not intellectual consent or, or cog- cognitive kind of uh, understanding. I mean, your life will display what you truly know relationally God to be like by how you treat one another. You'll always love this way based upon what you know is true this way in terms of God's love for you. So Paul is saying, if you think you know and you think you have wisdom and you think you have knowledge and yet you don't have love, you don't have anything. You have no knowledge of the truth if you have no love for one another. And some of you may go, well, Jeff, I have knowledge, but I'm living like I don't. Well, maybe you forgot. Maybe you're living like you're ignorant and you just need to remember today what our God is like. I know for... For our church, many of you have spent years studying the Bible, memorizing it, you know, and some of you went to Awana and you got badges and, you know, buttons and all kinds of things to pin up, right? And I'm not taking that away. I just would say, if it didn't produce love, it means nothing at the end of the day. It should lead us to one another, not away from one another. And so I want to encourage you as you think about your relationships and the people in your life, those who are both easy to love and those who are challenged to love, ask yourself, do I know and fail to love? Because then my knowledge needs to experience repentance. Three, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, could also be translated to boast. In other words, there were people that would give their bodies over in kind of indentured servitude and then get what they would receive for giving their whole life in service to another so they could give that money to help their family who was in need. He's saying, even if you gave up your entire life in that way, so that you might boast about it, but have not love, you gain nothing. Now, I wanna stop and just make sure we hear this family We wanna continue to grow and be a generous church and we are a generous church but I think we need to grow even more in caring for the poor amongst us. It's easy in a highly affluent culture to close our eyes to the brokenness and the suffering and the the impoverished reality that still is around us. And so I wanna keep growing in that. In fact, if I'm honest, one of the reasons why I love love this opportunity that we have ahead of us to think about where God might send us in terms of another building is that there's this part of me that's going, God, would you please reduce the cost of a building significantly so we can stop spending all of our money on a building and start giving it away to the poor and the broken in this city and in this region? Can I have an amen on that one? I mean, I hope whenever you look at those numbers, you go, that doesn't seem right to put 40 plus percent of our budget into a building it's what we have and we've been looking and praying but i'm just and i want you to pray with me that god would give us favor that god would open doors that god might even move in a local church to go we want to give you our building or let you be a part of our our building and use it or that god somehow would just find a miracle i think he will a miraculous way to make our cost go way down so we can start giving a whole lot more money away to people Cause there are a lot of rich people in the room, and we want to help you spend your money well to those who actually need it. Okay, yeah, amens on that. Okay, but if we do that, don't boast in that, because if we do that without love, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In fact, I would say we've got to watch ourselves. We go, man. I just got the reason I give. The mainly, main reason I give is I got to get a tax deduction. That's not love. If I do it because it makes me feel a lot better about myself, that's not love. If I do it because I feel guilty about things I've done or I spent too much on a house or a car or a vacation or whatever it may be, so I now I gotta kind of assuage my guilt and make myself feel better, that's not love. In fact, I, if I could just let you off the hook, Jesus already paid for our guilt. Stop trying to tone for it with your activity. Enjoy good gifts that he gives you and then give because you love. God and you love people. I want want to make sure this is really clear. Love, according to Paul, and I think the entire narrative of the Bible, love is everything. And without love, everything is nothing. Love is everything, and without love, everything is nothing. In the words of relational psychotherapist James. Ultheus, he says this, loving is not merely one thing among others that we are called to do. Love is not an additive. Love is of the essence of being human, the connective tissue of reality, the oxygen of life. And the reason why that's true is because God is love and God created everything as an expression of his attributes, which means everything that's created is meant to be a display of the love of God. You should, when you drive, you know, we we have friends from out of town who went to Snoqualmie Falls yesterday, and I love that their daughter said, This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I'm just sitting there thinking, We're loaded with it in the Northwest, and if we don't, we aren't careful, we stop looking at the beauty around us and seeing the expression of God's heart and His love being poured out every day. And so, not only is that true of His creation, that it's a display of His love, but you and I, as image bearers of God, men and women made in the image of God, we are the crowning creation of God's love, that when he created us, it was his way of saying, I love you and I gave you life to be a demonstration of my love to the world. And so everything we're about is not only created as an expression of his love, but must be sustained and empowered by God's love. And so then it should stand to reason that anything not done in love or anyone absent of love would actually find themselves missing out on the very nature of what it means to be alive, to really live some of you are in the room right now going, I know what you mean. I feel like dying. I feel empty. I feel lonely. I feel like there's no meaning. And my hope is that you would walk out of here today with a fullness of the love of God that would change that for you. So I want you all to ask of your relationships and your activities, your daily practices, ask this question, why am I doing what I do? If I I can't honestly say I'm doing this for love, because of love, and in love, then we might want to question the whole enterprise of everything we're doing. Because if it's not for love, because of love, in love, then it likely is so that we might gain love because we feel we're lacking love. And I want you to walk out of here not lacking, but full so that you can give out of the overflow and abundance of the love of God. Well, if, if everything is nothing without love, then we need to consider as Paul gives us the opportunity to do, what is love? What is the way of love? Paul defines it, and as he's defining it, like I said early, he, earlier, he is confronting the Corinthians and their pride and their selfishness. And so I, I wanna invite us to be willing to be confronted today as well. See, the the scripture's really clear that God disciplines those he loves like a good father because he knows that if we walk in ways that are destructive to us and one another, it's not loving. And so the most loving thing a heavenly father can do by his spirit is convict you of any way in which you're not walking in the way of love. And that's my hope. I, in fact, I want you just kind of, if you're willing to go, God, I, I want you to convict me. I want you to confront me. I want you to show me, just like Paul was trying to do with the Corinthian church, show me where I'm not walking in the way of love. Examine my heart. Examine my actions. Examine where I'm lacking love in my relationship. And I want to make sure it's, it's, I'm clear on this, that if we're not careful, what, what some of you will do is you'll go, you go, man, I'm doing really great because the people that I like to love, I'm doing all this with. I had a conversation with a young man a few months ago who was struggling with a breakup and, and he was saying, man, I'm just trying to learn how to do 1 Corinthians 13 love and love, love her like that. And I said, hold on, wait a minute. You could easily be trying to love her like that so you'll win her back, which is completely selfish. Let me ask you, are you willing to do 1 Corinthians 13 love to everybody God brings into your pathway? Because it's not who I love, it's the way of love. That's very different. And some of you are going like, man, I'll do this with my spouse or my best friend or my kids, but don't ask me to do this with my my enemy or the person who's hurt me or the person I'm in a relationship with that's not going well right now. And I would say that's where you probably should listen today when I describe the way of love. Love is patient. Lewis Meads, so by the way, the word patient also means long-suffering. Lewis Smead says this, when I turn off suffering for the sake of my pleasure, I turn it off too soon. See, I, I, think, I think when you talk about love being patient, it's this, it's this idea that I'm willing, and I'm not, it's not abused, please don't hear that. If some of you are in abusive relationships, I'm not affirming that at all. Please let us come around you and help you with that. But there are some of you who are learning to die to yourself and your pleasure so that you can love somebody, and it's hard to keep doing it. You just get a little weary of it. And unfortunately, I think, when well, I don't have my phone, I was gonna bring it up. Imagine I'm holding it up. <laughs> These gadgets that we're looking at all day long are training you to be about as patient as the next swipe. It's like immediate, constant gratification. And it often doesn't gratify, so you just keep going and going and going. And unfortunately, we don't even know how to sit still and suffer with one another. I'm I'm becoming more convinced that 520 and and 405 are God's gift (laughs) to you and I. So you can just sit in traffic a little bit and go, I'm gonna learn how to suffer. (laughs) I was heading to a meeting in Seattle and I was on the 520 at the worst time of day and I I was all by myself, which really stinks because you can't get in the HOV lane, and it's going so slow, and I'm going to be late for my meeting, and I'm watching all these passenger, these single passenger vehicles in my left you know, mirror coming past me in the HOV one after another. After another, I'm like, and some of you are in the room. I know you are, and you know I saw you, right? And I'm just like, we can't even slow down. Like we gotta, and, and it's almost like my agenda is more important than the rest of your agenda so I get to justify my behavior when you have to sit and I get to drive fast. Now, if everybody did that, we wouldn't have an HOV lane, right? Now, I'll tell you, like I was, I was steaming. I was struggling. I was praying. I was trying to have a long-suffering, patient love, to be honest. And I was like, under the breath, I'm kind of like starting to almost curse people, you know, like, what's wrong with you people? What's wrong? And so I got, you know, I'd stayed in my lane. Until I got to the bridge, actually, and then, then I did sneak out into that HOV, just going, like, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it, and I started driving, and I started feeling guilty, and I drove right back in, I'm like, okay, I got to preach this message, man, I got to live this out, right? And I, I don't know if that's how you are, but if I can't do that in traffic, how in the world am I going to do that in a relationship, where it's so much harder to be patient, Long-suffering. And I'll be, if I'm honest, sometimes people don't change as fast as I would like. remember years ago when we were discipling a, our neighbor, some of you heard us tell the story of Nikki, and I just was like, God, why is it taking so long? And he's like, whose time are you on? Whose schedule is this? And I needed to be rebuked that it's his timing, not mine. Do I love her or do I just want her to change? Has she become a project to me or a sister in Christ? Love is kind. And the word kind is referring to our speech, how we talk to, how we talk about one another. And I'm telling you, there's maybe no more needy of a word, more necessary of a rebuke than the fact that love is kind on Twitter and on Facebook these days. You can go to to Instagram and that's usually kind because everybody's putting up their best life now and it's usually not real. But, But when you get the other stuff, like we're getting down and dirty and mean and we need this word because love doesn't tear down, it builds up. It speaks of one another in such a way that the people who are listening receive a benefit, a grace, a kind of encouragement. Let me ask you this, what's it like to be on the other side of you? That's a really good question to ask somebody close to you. What's it like to be on the other side of me when I'm mad, when I'm frustrated, when I've lost my temper? My my wife has regularly told me that I have um, a problem with my words coming out of my mouth before I think about them. In particular about her cooking. And just to be clear, my, Janie's a good cook. But we'll sit down for a meal and go, Did you follow the recipe? And how much of you are going like, You're a jerk. I know I say those things. I'm like, oh, it's going out. I don't want that to happen. You know, we're like, hey, was this meant to be spicy? And she's like, it's not helpful. It's not kind. And so I need to grow in this. Maybe you do as well. Love does not envy. Now Paul starts going after the very directly what they've been doing. Because you guys know the story, we've been talking about it. They're jealous. They're looking across the worship gathering going, man, you have a better prophetic word than I did. And man, how come it seems like you can interpret all the tongues? And man, you, every time you pray over people, they get healed. I want that. And they start becoming envious and jealous of gifts. And then people are trying to impress each other with their speech. And now they're one-upping each other in the conversation. You guys have been in one of those conversations, right? Where someone's like, yeah, yeah, man, I've got to tell you when I was a kid, you know, I, I remember Winning this tournament, it was so amazing. You're like, you, you want a tournament? Oh, let me tell you about the one I won. I went to the Olympics. So I was going like, you went to the Olympics? I went to the moon. All of a sudden, like it's just off the charts. We're trying to impress each other, and we do this all the time, and we laugh about it. But here's the deal: whenever we are walking in envious ways and in our speech, starting to tear each other down to build ourselves up, what we end up doing is we end up disparaging what God's doing in another person, so that we can get the, the credit. It's so damaging. In fact, usually when we start to say, I wish I had their situation or their gift or their, their, their ability, what we end up doing is saying, I don't think they should have that ability or that gift or that circumstance. In other words, we want them to lose it so that we might gain it, not love. Love does not boast. In boasting, we're trying to put ourselves up above others. We're trying to showboat to take the stage, steal the attention, I love what William Barclay says about this. True love will always be far more impressed with its own unworthiness than its own merit. Some of the men in the room, you need to remind your wife regularly that you don't deserve her. Some of you are looking over going, sweetie, I don't deserve you. Some of you know my story. I just, I just fooled my wife into thinking I was Amazing. And then we got married. <laughs> She's like, this man needs help, right? And, and so I know, I know I don't deserve Janie. I know I don't deserve a wife like her. And I, I wanna say that's not just about my relationship. I don't believe that I deserve anything God's given me. When we were singing those songs earlier, the, the whole time I was like, why me? Why do you love me? Why did you choose me? Why did you forgive me? Why did you pour out your spirit on my life? I don't deserve this. And you know what? The more that you sit in that place, the more that your affections for God grow because you go, I, I can't even believe you love me like this. And so my heart wells up with affection for my God. And as a result, then I have affection for you because I don't deserve to get to serve you. I don't, get to, I don't deserve to be preaching here every Sunday. If you knew my life, if you examined it as closely as God has examined it, you would say, Jeff shouldn't be doing this. But by God's grace, I'm up here because he loves me and he loves you. And therefore, what will I boast about? I would rather boast about Christ than anything else. See, it, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to love others when you think that you're always right, when you have it all together. In fact, have you ever been on the other, and don't raise your hand, please, but have you ever been on the other side of another person who can't listen to you because they're always right? Maybe some of you in the room are like, I have a hard time dealing with people who don't agree with me because I know I'm Right? And I would just say, love does not boast. Love walks with a humility that says, I, I'm sure there's things I don't know and things I can't see. And, and, and what I have, I don't deserve. It's not arrogant. I wanna pause a bit. Somebody, anybody, don't raise your hand. Anybody using Instagram regularly here? Okay, don't raise your hand. It's probably all of you. So that's why I'm not saying raise your hand. Think about how often on Instagram we're boasting about ourselves. And what if we just turned the camera away and we did less selfie and more other? And then we bragged about the people we were taking pictures of in situations. Just a little suggestion to try. I'll keep going. It's not arrogant. Earlier Paul said that knowledge puffs up but love builds up. And like I said, the arrogant person feels like I don't have anything to learn. I don't need to hear from you and... This is such a destruction to relationships. The word arrogant really means to, like the kind of breakdown of the word means to arrogate, which means to lay claim on something. It it leads to a kind of entitlement, a sense that I deserve more than I've been given. And when we live that way, it's so destructive to our relationships because we continue to consume and take from others instead of willingly give of ourselves. Love is not rude, which literally means it's, not shameful, it's not unpresentable. And you guys know the context if you haven't been with us. There was an incestual relationship going on in the church that the church not only wouldn't confront, but also bragged about and affirmed. So here you got a church that's that's not confronting sexual immorality, but rather affirming it publicly. And and Paul's wanting to confront that to say that's not love, to be clear. He also has in mind, I think, Likely the women who were publicly shaming the men in the gatherings as well as the agape feasts that were shaming the poor. And so he's, he's wanting to let them know love doesn't shame one another. It doesn't look down on one another and it certainly doesn't shame God by rejecting his word publicly and then affirming the opposite instead. We, we, live, we live in a context where rudeness is the norm. Where public shame is, is practiced in ways that we no longer blush and I think we need to realize that's not love. That's not love. And I want to come back to in a minute as we keep defining love, rejoicing in the truth, but before we do that, let's keep following Paul's thinking. It does not insist on its own way. Unfortunately, in a culture that we presently live in, we think love is you letting me do whatever I want. And Paul's going, no, that's not love. Love doesn't insist on you getting your way, Love insists on God having his way for the good of others. Some of you, even as we think about where we're gonna gather in the future, you're like, man, I sure hope it's close to our house so it's really convenient, right? And then it won't be for someone else, just to be clear. So everyone's gonna have some inconvenience in this next season. I was so blessed by one, one of the younger adults, a female here in our church came to me after. She said, you know, I was part of a church in Portland and they moved from the suburbs to the city. And when they did it, they, all they could do was meet in an already existing church building. And so they had to meet in the evenings in very, you know, not convenient times. And, And then you couldn't couldn't park, there was not enough parking in downtown Portland, so people had to Uber or take public transit, and so very few could park, and the church certainly lost some members because it wasn't as convenient, she said, but we got more pruned and more pure, more faithful, more committed to Jesus, and the Spirit of God started to be poured out in us in new ways. We grew as a church in such depth, and eventually numbers again, and now just recently that church has been given a new building, and, and God used that season in a very powerful way to purify their faith and their commitment to the the mission. And she said, Jeff, I want to let you know, I don't care where we land, I will Uber there. And I I was like, love doesn't insist on its own way. That's love expressed in action. Such an encouragement to me. It's not irritable or resentful, which could also be translated, it's not easily angered and keeps no record of wrongs. Let me ask, are you easily offended? Do you generally show up and go, yeah, I'm pretty mad at Jeff again? Which is okay, but if you're looking for it, that's a problem, right? And there are some people who are regularly going, I know I'm gonna get angry. I know someone's gonna let me down. I know that disappointment is around every corner. And so it's like walking on eggshells to be around you. And unfortunately, no one gets to love you because you're too brittle and hard to let anybody close. It's not, it's not easily angered. It's not ready to blow up. It's ready to embrace. And it keeps no record of wrongs. One of the things that's so beautiful about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is such that Jesus pays for our sin and doesn't hold it over our heads any longer. He doesn't say, yeah, but I remember that day when you, well, that's not how it works with him. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west and he doesn't hold it against us any longer. And if he's done that to you and I, then how much should we do that with one another as we say, God, help me to forgive? And it's not forget, just to be clear. I think that idea of forgive and forget is impossible. You can't forgive and forget. You can forgive and not hold it over each other's head and withhold love as a result. It's very different. We don't diminish sin. We acknowledge it needed Jesus to die for it, but we also believe he did. And therefore, we can release it into the hands of the one who can handle it rightly. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Notice Paul doesn't say it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with doing good. That's an interesting thing. I want to say that again. He doesn't say it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with doing good. No, he says it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And the reason why he says that is because he knows if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, which means you won't keep walking in wrongdoing if you know the truth. And unfortunately, I feel like we live in a context where we actually are saying, you don't have to receive and submit to the truth of God's word anymore because it's more loving not to. And what then we do is then we say, that isn't wrong anymore. Instead of saying, God's word is our truth and where he says it's wrong, it is wrong. And if we will submit to him, he'll set us free and then we'll be able to walk out, not wrongdoing, but right doing And that's the most loving thing we can do. In fact, I wanna be really clear. To say sin isn't sin is is not loving at all. To tell somebody that what they're doing that's violating God's commands is okay is not a loving thing to do. The most loving thing to do is to say there's a God who made you in a particular way to live in a particular way and you're not living in that way which is called sin but God loves you so much he sent his son to die for that sin so that you could be forgiven and set free from that sin to live a new life for his glory and in you doing that, you will know the love of God and you'll be able to give the love of God to another because we are not PC, we're KC. We're kingdom correct, not politically correct. Amen? Amen? Rejoice in the truth. Don't be ashamed of God's word. Love his word. Uphold his word. And love everybody who fails to uphold it, which is all of us in this room. And then bring them back. Because what do we do? We rejoice in the truth, which also means we rejoice in repentance. We rejoice any time when someone sees the truth and they turn back to God and receive grace in Christ and their lives are restored in the way he intended. And so we don't ever celebrate sin. And we don't ever celebrate when people fall. Because there's some of us in the room we're like, man, I can't wait till their sin catches up with them and their life is destroyed, and then I'm gonna celebrate. I want to say, that is not the heart of God, and that is not love at all. We should grieve deeply when sin brings about destruction, and we should celebrate un- unbelievably when someone repents and turns back to Jesus. So, how are we doing with love? Some of you going, like, I, are you almost done? I can't take anymore. And I want you to hear this whether you're a Christian or not. Everybody wants this love. Stephen T. Hum, T. Um says it this way, on our best ways we long to give this love and on our worst days we long to receive this love. And some of you are in the room going, I just want to know a love that would love me no matter what I've done. Wouldn't give up on me, would be patient with me, would be kind to me, would not abuse me, would not take advantage of me, but would lay down their life for me. And there's others in the room going, I know that love, but I haven't been giving that love. And every one of us longs to give it, now longs to receive it. Whether you're a Christian or not, God made you for this. He made you by love, he made you for love, and he made you because of his love. And he wants you to live sustained only by love. See, the the oxygen you and I breathe is really the breath of God, ultimately. And that breath breathes out love. And the currency that we should spend in the kingdom of God is not self-interest, but love given away for others. But you can't do this without help. In fact, I wanna say this, you can't even manufacture this love. You can't work hard enough to accomplish it. You can't try harder. Stephen um, continues saying it this way. We can hold on by recognizing that that we've made a fatal error. What's that error? We have located love within ourselves. We have viewed it as though it's something we do, a muscle we exercise, an emotion we feel, an experience we have. The cost of locating love within ourselves is that we've given it an expiration date. It's gonna run out. If love is to be love, if it's to be what we've come to know it to be in all of its mystery and magic, if love is to be the love that we desire, crave and long for, then it will necessarily have to come from outside of us. And this is why Paul suggests that love is categorically different and permanently significant. Love happens outside of us. Love happens to us. Love is not words we say. It's not feelings we feel. It's not even deeds we do. It's something far bigger than all of that. And only this kind of love can redefine our lives. And only this kind of love comes from God. A love that bears all things. Believes all things. Even when you can't hardly believe anything. Hopes all things. Even when you feel like you're in despair endures all things when you want to give up. Why? Because this love never ends. The actual literal translation of that phrase, this love never ends, love never ends, is love never collapses. It never falls apart. It, never, it can handle the weight of your burden. It can push in where you feel like you've got nothing left. It can help you endure when you want to give up. It can help you have faith to believe when you feel like you've got nothing That's this love, and that's the love that is from God. And this love is not only a way, this love is a person who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, and that's Jesus Christ. In fact, we could take and rewrite this entire chapter and put Jesus where it says love and say this, Jesus is patient and kind. Because he patiently has waited for you to respond to his invitation, to receive his gift of forgiveness, to come into the family that he's offered and paid for with his own life. And you've rebelled and you've rejected him and you've continued to turn away and run the other way and he is waiting and pursuing and wants you. He's patient and kind. Speaks better words over you than you deserve before God the Father. Jesus does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude because he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't defend himself when he was wrongly accused at the cross. And instead of saying, Father, strike them down and rescue me, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus does not insist on his own way. He submitted himself to the hands of sinful men so that you and I would be forgiven. And Jesus is not irritable or resentful. He doesn't keep a record of wrongs. He's not easily angered. Right now, Jesus is not going, I'm so tired of how many times you fail me. Praise God. Because I'll tell you what, man, the, the thing I'm rejoicing in is the fact that no matter how many times I fall short, he never gives up on me. And he doesn't hold the record of wrong over my head. Instead, he holds the sonship over my head, the love of God over my head, acceptance over my head, forgiveness over my head. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus never gets excited at sin, and he gets brokenhearted how much it destroys us. Jesus bears all things and endures all things. He can handle anything you're facing right now. He's got more power and patience and and love than you can ever imagine. Nothing is too powerful for him. Nothing is too difficult for him. And Jesus believes all things and hopes all things. And he wants you to know that, that he believes better for you than you believe for yourself, that he hopes more for you than you could ever imagine, that the plans God has for you in your future are things that you could never dream of. I just wanna wanna encourage you and urge you, if you're going, "I, I need that love, I don't have that love, and maybe you've never received that love, that today I want you to come to Jesus for the first time and say, forgive me, change me, pour out your heart, your love, your spirit into my life. And you can have the love of God in you to give to others. And like I said, that love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, which is really good news because none of us have seen the full picture yet of all that God's up to. When the perfect comes, which refers to Jesus' return when he makes all things new, which you have already teached on in chapter 15, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And Paul is referring to childish ways as things that are unloving. Just to be clear, spiritual maturity in the Bible is not more knowledge, it's more love. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Which means we won't need prophecy because we'll know it all in terms of what we need to know. We won't need tongues because we're all gonna praise him in our languages, but still understand each other somehow, which is gonna be amazing. And we'll really know, we'll finally know Jesus. Jesus. Which means we'll finally know love. Which means we'll finally be full and mature in love. And I'll tell you, there are many days when I'm like, Jesus, come back quickly because I'm so tired of fighting myself and how unloving I can become. Just, just end this brokenness of my sin and let's finish this thing. Anybody else with me on that? Amen. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. What we will do forever is love. Perfectly, fully. What we will experience forever is the deepest expression of love you and I could ever imagine and beyond. If you think you've tasted love, you have no idea because you see dimly and we don't know fully, but one day we will. And if you think love is amazing, just wait. In fact, my desire is that all of you will be there forever, basking in perfect love for him and each other, forever. And you know what we should do now? We should love like we expect it's gonna happen someday. Like let's practice for the party that we're gonna have one day and start learning how to love each other differently. And I told you to think through how you'd apply this to your relationships. One thing I've learned, I can only ever get the fullness of the love of God when I actually need the love of God to fill me. In other words, right now you go, I've got a relationship right now and I don't know how to love them anymore. And I would just say, you can't, but he can. And if you'll say, will you help me step out of the boat of my fear, of my insecurity, of my inadequacy and love this person with this kind of love? I promise you, God will pour out the Spirit into your heart to give you the kind of love that you need to love them with. And see, the beauty of that is, God gives His commands so that you'll need God. He doesn't give them so that you can do it without Him, He does it so that you will realize you can't do it without Him because the goal of every one of His commands is to lead you back to Him. And then you get to commune with the God who is love and then love somebody you couldn't love apart from Him. That's the good news. You get God.